0: Making history his story, Derek Izzy. Moses, thank you for that wonderful introduction. You are listening to The Derek Izzy Show. The sponsor of today's podcast is On It. O-N-N-I-T. Go to Onnit.com and see the best in fitness equipment and nutrition. I've been a longtime customer of Onnit, and if you'd like to save 10% on Onnit products, just use promo code Derek, D-E-R-E-K. When you go to Onnit.com, you can shop for nutritional supplements, deodorants, soaps, weightlifting equipment, MCT oil, brain enhancers, they've got it all. If it's related to nutrition, on it makes a product that will help you out. My favorite item at Onnit? Well, I've got two now. It used to be the Warrior Bars, Buffalo Meat Protein Bars, high in protein, low in fat, low in calories, excellent taste. And after eating those, I tried the Jalapeno Warrior Bars. Those were really good, too. And then I tried a new product. I tried their Oatmega Protein Bar, filled with omega-3s, made from grass-fed whey. The omega bars come in several different flavors. You got chocolate peanut butter crisp, chocolate mint crisp, brownie crisp, and then my favorite, the vanilla almond crisp. They come in individual bars, or you can get a box of 12, but definitely one of my favorite snacks. Try and eat one about every other day. Good source of protein, and they taste good. One of the downsides of taking protein supplements is the horrible taste. Well, these are good. If they weren't good, I wouldn't eat them, and I wouldn't tell you about them. Get some for yourself and save 10% using promo code Derek at the checkout. You can go to Onnit.com. Or you can click on the link right from DerekIzzy.com and get there on your own. Save 10% promo code Derek. Moses, have you ever had many of those protein bars? No, boss, I haven't tried a protein bar, but I did try the Warrior Bars. And I'm hooked on them. I love that that Warrior Bar. The buffalo meat and... Now I'm actually going out to restaurants looking for buffalo burgers. Really? You like those? I'm a big fan of the buffalo. Yeah. Cool. Very good to hear from somebody who actually tries the product other than myself and the the fans. Of course, we don't have recordings of the fans, but I do appreciate when you guys send me emails and tell me about the sponsors of the show and what you like about their products. So continue to do that. You can always email me at Derek at DerekIzzy.com. And now, the topic of today's podcast. This podcast is entitled The Art of the Duel. Dueling was a very old practice. You pretty much never see it today. It's an arranged engagement in combat between two individuals with matched weapons in accordance with a set of rules that both parties have agreed to. This was a method of settling conflict that was very big in Europe. During the 17th and 18th centuries, and even before that, duels were usually fought with swords. Around the 18th century, with the invention of the pistol, pistols became the method of choice during a duel. What is a duel? Well, it's a system of combat that's based on a code of honor. The purpose of the duel wasn't to really kill your opponent, but to right a wrong that you feel had been done to you. By winning the duel, your honor would be restored. The fact that you could lose your life during a duel demonstrated your honor and your commitment to the cause. Since the beginning of the duel... There have been several laws passed against it throughout history. There have been laws that have dated back into the 1200s that have outlawed duels. The Roman Empire was against dueling, and they passed legislation against it back during the Thirty Years' War. Legislation was also passed over in Europe, in England, outlawing duels, because England was one of the more active countries that was involved in dueling. And as the British colonies spread to the West, dueling became known to Americans as well. What brought about this type of conflict resolution? Well, back in the earlier times, honor was very important. Anytime something happened to damage one's honor, whether it was a real offense or something that they just erroneously took offense to, One party would demand satisfaction from the party that they felt wronged them. One way of getting satisfaction was to challenge them to a duel. You've probably seen this in a movie or in a book somewhere where in order to challenge someone, it was customary to smack them in the face with a glove or throw a a glove at someone. But in reality, this is not how most challenges were issued. With newspapers all over the country in the United States, that was the method of choice for most duelers. Challenges for a duel were often not even issued directly by the two parties involved. They were often issued by close friends. These were known as seconds. So if you felt that one of your best friends had been wronged by somebody else, you could take out an ad in the newspaper and issue a challenge to that person who wronged your friend, and challenge them to a duel with your friend. Once the challenge was accepted, the two parties involved in the duel were known as principals. They would pick somebody they trusted as their second, and this second would be present at the time of the duel. Often these seconds would try to get both parties to agree on something before the duel actually happened. They tried to come to a peaceful resolution. This didn't always work, and the exact etiquette behind the challenge and the acceptance was not always consistent in different parts of the world. But in the United States, there were some rules that were kind of accepted in the dueling world. One of the first rules was picking a site that was out of sight. They wanted to pick a field for the duel that was kind of isolated so it would not draw a crowd, and that only the direct people involved would be witness to the actions. One example of this was one of the most famous duels in American history between Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. For this duel, they chose the cliffs below the Weehawken and the Hudson River. This area was kind of in between New York and New Jersey, so there was a lot of uncertainty as to which legal jurisdiction the duel would fall under. Now, there were several types of duels you could do. You could do a duel to first blood. In that case, the duel would end as soon as one man was wounded, even if the wound was minor. You could choose to do a duel that would last until one man was so severely wounded that he could not physically continue the duel. Or lastly you could choose to duel to the death. In that case, the duel would continue until one party was mortally wounded. When it came to duels in the United States, what I said before about pistols being the method of choice, the way that would work is each party would take a set number of steps. Once there was a satisfactory amount of distance between the two parties, each party would fire one shot. If neither man was hit, and if the challenger stated he was satisfied, the duel would end there. If the challenger was not satisfied, it would continue until one man was either wounded or killed. The rules of dueling stipulated that no more than three exchanges of fire would happen during a duel, because these were honorable men. To have more than three exchanges of fire, well, that was considered barbaric and somewhat ridiculous by the people of the time. That kind of gave them a leeway so that they could intentionally miss in order to fulfill the conditions of the duel. That way, neither party had to lose their life or lose their honor. There were rules against shooting or firing into the air or missing intentionally. Like I said, practices varied. But unless the challenger was of a higher social standing, the person being challenged was allowed to decide the time and weapons used in the duel. The offended party could actually stop the duel at any time if he deemed his honor satisfied. Participation in a duel could be honorably refused on account of a major difference in age between the parties or in cases of social inferiority on the part of the challenger so for example if a peasant had challenged a prince to a duel the prince could easily refuse and there would be no consequences to the honor of the prince between 1798 and 1863 the US Navy lost two-thirds as many officers to dueling as it did in combat at sea Officers were typically known as higher social class than the rest of the privates and men who were enlisted in the armed forces. So this was how they dealt with disagreements. In the southern part of the United States, dueling was actually very prevalent. Despite having many prominent deaths in the South, dueling persisted because of the contemporary ideals of chivalry Chivalry was very big in the South, and the threat of being ridiculed if a challenge was rejected led most Southerners to accept a duel whenever challenged. One such man who participated in a duel was an American attorney. His duel was with President Andrew Jackson. Now, Andrew Jackson was not president at the time of the duel, but he did become president Later on in his career, the two men had a long-standing feud that started with a simple disagreement that they weren't even directly involved in, and then it kind of escalated into what became the challenge of the duel. The actual issue that caused problems for the two men was about a horse race between Andrew Jackson and Charles Dickinson's father-in-law. Moses, are you familiar with Charles Dickinson? Oh, yeah. He's the guy who wrote A Christmas Carol, right? No, Moses, he was not the guy who wrote A Christmas Carol. That, that was Charles Dickens. But thank you for your input. It's educational as always. So this dispute came about between Andrew Jackson and Joseph Irwin, who was Charles Dickinson's father-in-law. Charles Dickinson had been drunk and over this whole ordeal ended up insulting someone who was very close to Jackson. And there was an argument over the horse race and the appropriate amount of money being paid out after Joseph Irwin's horse went lame, losing the race by forfeit. As more people got involved, friends of the two parties, rumors were spread back and forth. Finally, in a confrontation at a tavern, Jackson actually struck one of Dickinson's friends. Dickinson then sent Jackson a letter calling him a coward about the same time that this friend wrote a column in a local newspaper calling Jackson a coward. Jackson responded in the same newspaper saying the friend was a lying valet for a worthless drunken blackguard, meaning Charles Dickinson. That was the last straw. When Dickinson returned from New Orleans in May of 1806, he published an attack on Jackson in a local newspaper, calling Jackson a poltroon and a coward. After reading this article, Andrew Jackson sent Charles Dickinson a letter requesting satisfaction due for the insults offered. Keep in mind, this is just a war of words, but it's very similar to the conflicts we see on Facebook and in social media. Somebody gets upset. They publish something about someone they don't like. Well, back in these times, the end result was a duel. Now, at the time, dueling had been outlawed in Tennessee. So the two men traveled over to Kentucky, right across the border. Now, Charles Dickinson was considered to be an expert shot. So... Andrew Jackson and his second decided to let Charles Dickinson fire first, hoping that his aim might be spoiled at the excitement of getting the first shot. Of course, the obvious problem with this strategy is that Jackson may no longer be alive after an expert marksman takes the first shot. Charles Dickinson took the first shot. The bullet hit Andrew Jackson in the chest. Now, under the rules of dueling, Dickinson had to remain still as Jackson got back up and took his one shot. Jackson's pistol stopped at half-cock. So he drew back the hammer and aimed again. This time, the bullet hit Dickinson in the chest. Dickinson dropped to the ground and bled to death. Doctors determined that the bullet that Jackson had absorbed was too close to his heart to operate. So Jackson carried that bullet in his chest for the rest of his life. Locals were outraged over the outcome of this duel, specifically because Jackson had recocked and shot Dickinson. Now that was considered acceptable behavior in the duel, based on the generally accepted rules of dueling, but it was not considered to be honorable behavior. One of the most well-known dueling grounds was in Bladensburg. It's a small piece of land along Dueling Creek, which used to be the town of Bladensburg, Maryland, but now it's in Comar Manor, which is just northeast of Washington, D.C. This area, from 1808 until 1868, had witnessed approximately 50 duels. Gentlemen, military officers, politicians, you name it, Bladensburg was the place to duel. The exact number of duels and the names of all the participants may never be known because dueling at the time was against the law. And the records of such duels are not very well documented. So there could be many more than the 50 in the estimates that I've read. One of the most notable duels that happened in Bladensburg was between Jonathan Silly and William Graves. Jonathan Silly was a member of the U.S. House of Representatives from Maine. He served part of one term in the 25th Congress, and that's when his duel with William Graves happened. William Graves was also in Congress. He was a representative from the state of Kentucky. The two of them had had some words. Graves was a stand in for the New York newspaper editor, James Watson Webb, and Jonathan Silly had called Mr. Webb corrupt. Now, Silly was inexperienced with guns, but William Graves was a very good shot. Since Graves challenged Silly to the duel, Silly had the choice of weapons. His selection was to use rifles at a distance of 80 yards. His idea was that by creating a distance that was that far away, William Graves, despite having an expert marksman capability, would still not be able to hit him at that distance. History buffs have concluded that the actual distance... Of the first shots they exchanged was actually 94 yards, and both participants missed. They agreed to shorten the distance and fire again. Again, they both missed. After shortening the distance for a third round, William Graves was able to shoot Jonathan Silly in the femoral artery. He bled to death in less than two minutes. It was this duel that prompted Congress to act. Dueling had already been outlawed, but in 1839, Congress prohibited the issuing or accepting of a challenge of a duel within the District of Columbia, even if the duel was fought outside the district. This was a loophole in the previous law that allowed dueling to continue. The last duel I'm going to tell you about also happened to be one of the more interesting duels. It was between two men, David Broderick and David Terry. David Broderick was an attorney and a senator. He was a Democrat from the state of California. He was also president of the Senate. Now David Terry was a Democratic politician. He was the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of California. Now, these two gentlemen had actually been friends, but David Terry accused David Broderick of having engineered his loss for re-election in the 1859 state senate election. David Terry issued inflammatory comments at a state convention in Sacramento, and David Broderick was very offended. On September 13, 1859, Terry and Broderick, having agreed to a duel, met just outside the San Francisco city limits. Terry won the coin toss to select the weapons, and his decision was to choose pistols. Now these pistols had hair triggers, so you had to handle them very carefully. At the start of the duel, Broderick's pistol discharged early, leaving him open for Terry to fire. Terry's first shot hit Broderick. At first, Terry thought it was just a flesh wound. But three days later, David Broderick died. Charges were brought against David Terry for murder. He was acquitted and then left the state. What makes him interesting is that his life of trials and turmoil did not end with this duel. David Terry went on to participate in the Civil War, and he became entrenched in a very bizarre divorce case. It was the 1880s. A young woman named Sarah Hill claimed that she was the legal wife of a man named William Sharon. Mr. Sharon was a very wealthy person in the business of silver. Now, William Sharon denied that they ever got married, but Sarah Hill wanted a divorce, and a share of Mr. Sharon's treasure. She eventually lost her case, and guess who she married? David Terry. Now Terry, being well-versed with the legal system, decided to help out his new wife, and on behalf of her, Terry appealed the ruling on the lawsuit against the silver millionaire, William Sharon. But when a Supreme Court Justice, Stephen Field, who used to be a friend of David Broderick, when he heard about the case in 1888, Field ruled against the Terrys in a final appeal. And then he threw them both in jail on contempt charges. The Terrys vowed revenge. A year later, David Terry assaulted Stephen Field at a train station in Stockton, California. Field's bodyguard, also a United States marshal, drew his weapon and shot and killed David Terry. The U.S. marshal was arrested on charges of murder, but was ultimately released. A U.S. Supreme Court decision had determined that the Attorney General of the United States had the authority to appoint U.S. marshals as bodyguards to Supreme Court justices. Therefore, he had the legal right to shoot and kill somebody who was assaulting a Supreme Court justice. After the death of David Terry, his wife Sarah went insane. She spent the rest of her life at the Stockton State Hospital, where she died in 1936. She's buried in the same gravesite as her husband. Terry's first wife? is buried right next to him. Now that you know the history and the art of the duel, you can take a different look at the people behind social media posts and learn how they did it back in the day. Back when there was honor in a man's word and that honor could be defended with one's life. This has been the derek izzy show don't forget to visit on it use promo code derek derek get 10% off and try those warrior bars delicious endorsed by moses buffalo meat high in protein good for you and great tasting good day